What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Come with me if you want to live. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. The Force will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly. Today, we're going to talk about scary stories. More specifically, scary stories to tell in the dark. Collected from folklore and retold by Alvin Schwartz and accompanied by the art of Stephen Gemmell. I wanted to take a look at this book for several reasons. The most obvious one being that the film is coming out later this year and I wanted to know what the film would be referencing. More than that though, this book and its two sequels, More Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark and Scary Stories, More Tales to Chill Your Bones, are a bit of a blind spot in my pop culture knowledge. They're an American phenomenon and I've worked in the States on several occasions and had friends and their kids mention these books as something they either remember from their childhood or a source of chilling fun scares on a cold winter night or around an evening summer campfire. These books and the tales within have been the entry point of horror for so many people I wanted to know why this had such an impact. The final reason is that I love scary stories of all kinds. I always have done. Sitting around swapping stories that were either claimed to be true or just created to be outlandishly scary. How could I not get round to a book called Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark? I'm going to start the pod by reviewing the book. Then I'm going to expand on the ideas of common horror stories and how they are passed around and down from generation to generation and how modern mediums have changed these things. Actually, before I start the review, I want to tell you a scary story from my childhood. It was part of a local legend and was often told in hushed tones and as a cautionary tale. It's from my time in the Cubs and Scouts in Coventry, England, and was often referred to as the story of the Green Hand. Every year, we would have a summer camp at a scouting campground called Rough Close. It was part of a large piece of land that had been mined under, and so was not going to be used for housing. However, when the land was part of an active mine, there was a caretaker for the land, who lived in a small two-up, two-down, near the entrance. He lived there with his wife and their little dog. He had lived there for many years and was planning on working pretty much till the day he died. He loved his job and his small, comfortable life. So it came as a massive blow when he was told that the mine was closing and he, his wife and their little dog had to move out of the house. The news threw him into a depression which pushed him to drink. His wife was also panicked about the situation and would constantly ask what they would do, what would become of them. 
his drinking got worse. And eventually his wife's fretting pushed him to the limit. In a fit of rage and depression, he strangled his poor wife to death. Coming to his senses and seeing what he had done, he wept. But he soon realised that this wasn't his fault. It was the fault of the mine owner. Driven by his newly directed rage, he grabbed an axe and stormed through the wood and land heading for the mining office. However, he came across a group of miners and the mine owner on the edge of the wood. He instantly attacked, drunkenly swinging the axe and screaming incomprehensibly. He missed most of his targets and fell to the floor. The miners jumped in and struggled to take the axe from him. In the fight, several men were injured, but the caretaker was killed. The axe had swung and dug into his chest and cut off his hand. He lay bleeding on the mossy ground of the wood. Later, the police would find the body of his wife. The dead caretaker was taken from the site, but his severed hand was never found. Now, the rotting green hand creeps through the woods at night looking to attack and strangle any unwary camper it finds trespassing in the land it was supposed to take care of. The story will be finished by one of the group leaders throwing a green rubber hand at some of us sat around listening. Screaming and laughing would ensue and we'd move on to a rendition of a dog called Bingo. Don't forget this story was being told to eight-year-olds. The story of closing minds, emotional breakdown and murder. The body parts taking murderous revenge of young trespassers seems pretty tame by the end. Well, that's Britain in the 80s for you. You couldn't even have a simple campfire horror story without mentioning how Maggie Thatcher had ruined the country and the mining industry. Despite the story's odd political overtones, it had a real impact on me as a daft, superstitious kid. I was convinced that a decomposing hand was prowling through the undergrowth as we lay sleeping, protected only by a thin layer of canvas. In fact, I think most of us were, and we would sit in the tents at night daring each other to go outside and see how long we would last. I honestly don't think I ever left the tent. I'm telling this story as an example that scary stories are a fundamental part of growing up. Moreover, that even as children we learn things through an oral tradition. I was told a version of this story 30 years ago, and now I'm telling it to a whole new audience. The location and job of the protagonist are changeable story points, which means the story could be told in any part of the world and still have kids looking out for creepy green hands. And that is the starting point of why I think Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark is such a success. The book was released in 1981 and is actually a collection of stories from around America and even Britain that have been told for decades, if not centuries. Reading this as an adult, of the 30 tales in the book, you will recognise some, if not most, in some format or other. However, there are a couple that are so bizarre that I had never heard any version of them. 
The short introduction is a nice insight as well into what you're about to read. And while I'm sure this is usually skipped over by most kids reading the book, it is actually worth your time. Schwartz mentions much of what I've already mentioned, how stories passed down from over years and generations told from one person to the next. But he also references the famous untold horror story in Shakespeare's The Winter Tale, which of course was expanded upon by great effect by another author of the macabre, M.R. James, in There Was a Man Dwelt by a Churchyard. From this, I understand that not only does Schwartz have an appreciation for a good scare and a well-told story, he has respect for the storytellers that have come before. Schwartz divides the book into five sections, grouping similar stories under each. This makes finding a particular story easier, but also you can find themes and links in the stories as you read through them. The first section, ah, and that is the title, I Didn't Just Stub My Toe, is a doozy of an opener, and easily my favourite section. The stories in this section all have an interactive element to them that delivers the end scare. A jump, a shout, or a blood-curdling scream. They're great fun. I tried several of these on my daughter and some of her friends. It got the desired result of fear and panic, followed by laughter, and my daughter telling me off for making them jump. These encapsulate the safe jump scare that gets your heart racing, and then we're able to laugh at quickly. How silly we were for jumping at something so daft. Of the stories in this section... Me Tie Doty Walker is my standout. It's bizarre and creepy, with no real purpose other than to scare. Let's check it out. There was a haunted house where every night a bloody head fell down the chimney. At least, that's what people said. So nobody would stay there overnight. Then, a rich man offered $200 to whoever would do it, and this boy said he would try, if he could have his dog with him. So it was all settled. The very next night, the boy went to the house with his dog. To make it more cheerful, he started a fire in the fireplace. Then he sat in front of the fire and waited and his dog waited with him. For a while, nothing happened. But a little after midnight, he heard someone singing softly and sadly off in the woods. The singing sounded something like this. Meet I doty walker. It's just somebody singing, the boy told himself. But he was very frightened. Then his dog answered the song, softly and sadly it sang, Linchy kinchy Collie molly dingo dingo. The boy could not believe his ears. His dog had never uttered a word before. Then a few minutes later, he heard the singing again. Now it was closer and louder, but the words were the same. Meet I doty walker. This time, the boy tried to stop his dog from answering. He was afraid that whoever was singing would hear it and come after them. But his dog paid no attention, and it sang again 
Lynchy, kinchy, collie, mollo, dingo, dingo. A half hour later, the boy heard the singing again. Now it was in the backyard, and the song was the same. Meet I doty walker. Again, the boy tried to keep his dog quiet, but the dog sang out louder than ever. Lynchy, kinchy, collie, molly, dingo, dingo. Soon, the boy heard the singing again. Now, it was coming down the chimney. Meet I The dog sang right back. Lynchy, kinchy, collie, molly, dingo, dingo. Suddenly, a bloody head fell out of the chimney. It missed the fire and landed right next to the dog. The dog took one look and fell over, dead from fright. The head turned and stared at the boy. Slowly, it opened its mouth and... A great story. The first thing to note is the writing style. Schwartz has kept the language and wording simple. The idea being that this is designed for an entry point of horror and folklore for kids. By keeping the language accessible, kids are more likely to get through the book. However, there's a second reason. By keeping the storytelling plain, it is easy to remember for both children and adults. This way, even if the book is not readily available, if you've read it, you're likely to remember some of the stories and be able to retell them, probably with your own little twist. The story was dictated to a Professor Herbert in 1940, having been passed around verbally within Kentucky, to be collected finally in this book. It has since been altered slightly to be added to this collection. I know this because of another great section in the book. Not only does Schwartz provide the story, he also provides notes on its origins, where it comes from, how he came across it, and highlights other books where other variations and more information on the story can be found. For me, this elevates the book from a simple collection of scary stories to being a time capsule. Like the Brothers Grimm before him, Schwartz is collecting and preserving a part of our culture that could have been lost. These stories collected from different parts of America and the cultures that migrated there in the 17 and 1800s continue in other sections. The second section, he heard footsteps coming up the cellar stairs, are stories of ghosts returning with unfinished business or as portents of the future. These are more traditional ghost stories with both the haunted house and the guests being stories that I have heard variations of before. The haunted house tells of a spectral woman looking to identify her murderer before she can rest. The Guests is about a couple that take refuge in an old house to avoid bad weather, only to find later that the house had burned down ten years before. I'm sure that versions of these have been told about old houses and ruins in pretty much every country. They are simple, effective and applicable to almost any culture. However, it's in this section and the next, they eat your eyes, they eat your nose, that something starts to become apparent to me. The best stories, the ones that stand out and stay with me after reading, are the ones that have a certain structure. They have a creepy setup and then hit you with a doozy of a punchline. 
Most of the stories in the first section achieve this because, well, that's the point. They are designed to have that quick jump scare. There are a couple that aren't great, such as The Walk and The Man Who Lived in Leeds. These stories lean more into the weird and the bizarre. The jump scare is a little tacked on, and the result aren't as solid. Even if a story isn't trying to elicit a jump scare, it still needs a good, scary or unexpected punchline. In the third section, two stories, The Girl Who Stood on a Grave and Room for One More, achieve this nicely. Further to this, though, this section has a great interactive Halloween story game, The Dead Man's Brains, in which blindfolded people fondle different foods while being told they are actually touching parts of a dead body. A gross, fun, modern Halloween tradition. The fourth section is unusual in the book as it collects modern urban legends. Stories that have been used in movies and early episodes of Supernatural. The tales of the hook-handed man attacking a couple in a car and the babysitter receiving calls from inside the house are so well known. The older stories in this book are short but well told. Several of these modern stories feel rushed. As if Schwartz is collecting them out of a need rather than actually wanting them in the book. But these stories are just as important as all the others. They stand in contrast to the older stories, highlighting our modern fears. We'll talk more about this later in the podcast. The final section, again called Ah, is a series of humorous stories. While I have acknowledged this book is written for kids, the previous sections have had enough detail of horror for the stories to act as the basis for really creepy stories that could give most people a chill. Unfortunately, the humour in the last chapter is very childish, and being simply written doesn't help. Having said that, there are two stories worth a look. Aaron Kelly's Bones is entertaining in its ridiculous concept. However, The one that really struck me is incredibly bizarre and is more akin to a modern weird fiction tale than pure horror. The story is called Wait Till Martin Comes. An old man was out for a walk. When a storm came up, he looked for a place to take shelter. Soon he came to an old house. He ran up on the porch and knocked on the door, but nobody answered. By now, rain was pouring down, thunder was booming, and lightning was flashing. So he tried the door. When he found it was unlocked, he went inside. Except for a pile of wooden boxes, the house was completely empty. He broke up some of the boxes and made a fire with them. Then he sat down in front of that fire and dried himself. It was so warm and cosy that he fell fast asleep. When he woke up, a black cat was sitting near the fire. It stared at him for a while. Then it purred. That's a nice cat, he thought, and he dozed off again. When he opened his eyes, there was a second cat in the room. But this one was as big as a wolf. It looked at him very closely, and it asked, Shall we do it now? No, 
said the other cat. Let's wait till Martin comes. I must be dreaming, thought the old man. He closed his eyes again, and then he took another look. But now, there was a third cat in the room, and this one was as big as a tiger. It looked the old man over, and it asked, Shall we do it now? No, said the others. Let's wait till Martin comes. The old man jumped up, jumped out the window, and started running. When Martin comes, you tell him I couldn't wait. While the punchline is a little weak, I love the bizarre nature of this story. What are these cat-like creatures? Who is Martin? And what are they planning to do to the poor man? Nothing is answered or explained. It's just a wonderland of weird and creepiness. I picked up a copy of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark with no real expectations. I knew it had a large fan base in the States and is held in quite high regard. However, coming to it as an adult, I was only hoping to see why this was such a popular kids book and so often described as an early entry point for horror. Having read the book, I can completely understand why this is so popular with the 7 to 12 year old range and why it has been touted as starting a starting point for so many as the start of their love for all things macabre, weird and horrific. The story collections in each section are well chosen and perfectly written for the age range. For the most part they contain creepy stories which will elicit a tingle of fear or a good jump scare. As with all story collections though, there are a couple of duds that feel underserved or don't hit the right note. All this is accompanied by the fantastically realised art of Stephen Gemmell. Later editions of this book have art from other artists, but Gemmell's art is the true form for these stories. His wispy figures drenched in shadow and character perfectly capture the tone of the stories being told. The images range from the nightmarish figure in the haunted house to the cartoonish character of the Viper. Listeners, I recommend you Google these images after the podcast and have a look at these brilliant images. Without a doubt, I would recommend this for younger readers. It's a good read with plenty of scares and for those interested, it will make them want to explore other types of horror and weird fiction. However, what I wasn't expecting was for me to become so interested in some of the stories themselves and to be provided with information about them in the book. I know this is a collection of short stories, but I did not know the work Schwartz had done to collect them. While I enjoyed the stories, I was more interested in the notes and sources sections. In the notes, Schwartz connects the stories contained in the book to other similar tales that are told all over America and Europe, highlighting how the stories are adjusted to fit certain cultures and geographic areas. In the introduction, Schwartz mentions how cowboys and travellers would often sit around a campfire at night and try to scare each other, making up dark stories and morality tales to entertain on the long treks. It's interesting to see how these tales and other stories of folklore and legend have stuck around, just changing for the audience. The two stories I read previously are outlandish and bizarre, 
with little that can be recounted as actual events. I enjoy them because they are so different and offbeat. However, the stories that really capture my imagination are the ones that get recounted as fact. The ones that happen to a friend, or a friend of a friend, or your friend's brother's girlfriend's cousin. There's always a connection, but it's pretty distant and tenuous. But it's still true. Or so they say. From the book, I recognise a version of the guests, a couple staying in a house only to find that it burnt down years before. The thing, seeing a skeletal figure that acts as a portent of death. Cold as clay, a person interacting with a ghost to affect events. And room for one more, a person seeing something creepy that warns them of potential death. Think Final Destination. I have heard all these stories as having happened to someone in real life. These are all stories that have origins from centuries ago and have just been adjusted over time in order for them to remain relevant. Do we believe that these events happened? That's for you to decide. However, not only do we rely on old stories to be updated as modern tales of the supernatural and horror, we make new ones. In the section, Other Dangers, Schwartz recounts the modern legends of the hook-handed man the caller in the house and the driver with the high beams warning of a killer in the back seat. These are modern tales of terror that require modern technology, a car or a telephone. I can remember being told the story of the killer in the back seat when I was in my early teens in the mid-90s. As if it was a news bulletin. I can still recall how my friend was adamant that it had happened in America and he'd seen it in the newspaper. He couldn't tell me which newspaper or when, but it was still being passed off as fact. The oral tradition continuing not round campfires, but on the school playground. I'm sure these legends persist, but at the same time I was being told about the killer in the back seat. Something was growing that would change how these tales, whether true or legend, would spread. We were getting the internet. The internet has blurred the line between the recounting of a scary story and the reporting of factual events. People are so eager to believe and want the world to contain dark and unusual things. This has led to certain stories jumping from fictional tale to urban legend very quickly. To be clear, this did happen before, just not as frequently. I mean, there could easily be an argument that this scenario is at least partially responsible for the witch trials of the 15th century across Europe and America. To bring it closer to home, I want to make you aware of the short story The Bowman by Arthur Macken. Published in late September 1914, the story tells of how the ghosts of the English bowmen of the Battle of Agincourt rose up to protect the retreating British and French soldiers from the Battle of Mons. The story was published in the London Evening News, and because Macken had previously reported on factual news, some people took this as a retelling of actual events. These were things that had been reported in the battlefield, or so they believed. This quickly gained momentum, and the following year a British magazine called Spiritualist reported accounts of supernatural interventions at the Battle of Mons. This bolstered the believers, 
and in many cases the ghost soldiers of the story had changed in the telling to become angels protecting the allied forces this in turn was picked up by churches up and down the country and used in sermons exclaiming the holy righteousness of the allied forces this is an excellent but often forgotten example of fiction being repackaged and pre being presented as true for a different purpose a similar thing happened with the bbc show ghost watch in 1992 the difference being that the BBC were able to respond to false claims it was real and having an effect within days, stopping the story of taking root in the popular zeitgeist. To bring it right up to date, I want to talk about two other examples of stories growing legs and becoming legends. The first was birthed in 1996, despite what anyone else will claim. The first mention of black-eyed kids was on a ghost-related mailing list posted by reporter Brian Bethel. The post contained two accounts of encounters with black-eyed kids, one in Texas, the other in Oregon. These stories were picked up by tabloid newspapers and eventually supernatural TV shows. Of course, as the coverage spread, so did the reported accounts of new run-ins with these ocularly challenged children. By the early 20-teens, reported accounts were all over the internet, particularly Reddit, as posters reported more and more elaborate accounts. In doing so, the children had morphed into a staple of paranormal lore, with specific do's and don'ts. More don'ts than do's, to be honest. The legend goes that these black-eyed kids, or BEK for short, you know they're real when they get an abbreviation. Approach a person in their house or car and ask to be let in. They use manipulation, pleading and threats to make you do what they ask. But you cannot, under any circumstances, feed them after mid uh, let them in. Sorry. If you do, you are either killed there and then, or they wait around until they are picked up by a black car with tinted windows and you die of some terrible illness within a year. I found reports of both online. I'm more curious about the second version of events. What kind of small talk do you have with supernatural evil beings? And is the car some kind of paranormal uber? The fact is, these entities that started as a post on a local mailing list in Texas in 1996 are considered a legitimate supernatural phenomena that is reported and investigated all over the Western world. Close to where I live, there have been reports of black-eyed kids in the woods of Cannock Chase, and paranormal groups have actually gone to investigate. Let's just think about that. In 20 years, these things have gone from not existing as a concept to being the focus of study for some people. Moving on to a massive paranormal scary story meme, I want to quickly touch on the Slender Man. Created by Eric Goodson in 2009 for a competition on the Something Awful website, the Slender Man has gone on to become a modern sensation. He has appeared in video games, novels and movies as a modern horror icon. 
His motivation and origins have never been fully clarified, and so he can be used in multiple different ways. He is the perfect cipher for modern folklore. Going back to scary stories to tell in the dark, the slender man can be held up beside the skeletal creature from The Thing, the Windigo, or the hook-handed man. I'm sure there is a generation that sits around at night and tells stories of how the slender man is waiting for them in the dark. While it is commonly known that the slender man is a work of fiction, it must be remembered that the figure of fear did cross the boundaries into reality at least once. In 2014, Peyton Lautner was stabbed 19 times by Anissa Weir and Morgan Gazer. The perpetrators claimed that after reading about the Slender Man, they believed he was real, and they wanted to act as his proxies on this plane of reality, protecting their families and being able to live with him in his mansion in the woods of Nicolette National Forest. The legend of the Slender Man has now taken on a new twist. The story has reached out from beyond the internet to affect real-world events. While researching this legend and the associated crime, I have found posts claiming that the Slenderman has become real because of the attention it has received, like some psychic thought form or tulpa. This horrific crime has transitioned the meme from a story to a figure of folklore and legend. There are now people that believe he is real and are trying to link him to existing paranormal and folklore entities such as shadow creatures, demons, aliens and even evil fairies. In a decade, the Slenderman has gone from online competition entry to a fixture of paranormal discourse. Granted, within the more fringe communities, but who knows where the journey will end. The Black-Eyed Kids and Slenderman are forms of creepy pasta that have taken on a new life. They started as scary stories to tell in the dark and have become, or are moving towards, becoming figures of paranormal study. In centuries past, people feared creatures of the night, vampires, werewolves and witches, To spread the lore of how to deal with these, they told stories or accounts of supposed encounters. Over time, they transitioned to become scary stories, told in novels and movies. Now these figures are passé and hold little fear for the modern world. So now we are creating new figures of fear and the process is happening in reverse. Scary stories created to creep people out become tales of supposedly real creatures and entities of fear. We love to fill the dark places with something to be scared of. In 50 or 100 years from now, if someone was to put a new collection of scary stories to tell tell in the dark together, it would likely contain black-eyed kids, slender man, shadow people and dear David. If you are unaware of any of these, I highly recommend you Google them. They are fascinating and you can go down a black hole of videos and articles for each of them. Please get in contact and let me know your favourite scary stories or supernatural entity. Do you believe in the supernatural? And what things have you gone looking for?
If you'd like to get in contact, and please do, email me at 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com or find me on the majority of social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, all under at 20thCenturyGeek. If you want to help support the show, and I really hope you do enjoy it, please spread the word. Tell other people about the podcast. Go onto the podcast catcher where you heard this and give us a five-star review. It really helps. If you wanted to do more, check out our Patreon page. Every month we do two additional podcasts for Patreons only. I look at a past movie and answer the question, is it really that bad? And in addition to that, I sit down with my non-nerdy wife, Alex, to watch things from past pop culture, Star Trek, Batman 66, and the Viewer Skew universe. They've been some great fun. If, however, you don't want to give time and money to the Patreon, please check out, we do have a 20th Century Geek wish list on Amazon. There are plenty of books on there that would help research in the future. And we do like second-hand books in 20th Century Towers. Thank you for listening, and I hope you check us out in our next episode when we are going to be looking at a collection of horror anthology books that were famous in Britain from 1969 to 1989. That will then be followed up with our full Predator retrospective. That's all Predator films. Predator, Predator 2, Predators, AVP, AVP Requiem, and of course last year's The Predator. I look forward to getting through that, and I'll see you next time.